Welcome to Underworld, uh, a podcast all about crime all over the world. I'm your host, Sean Williams. Uh, usually I'd be coming to you from a Berlin studio or an apartment, but right now I'm about two hours away from getting out of quarantine in a hotel somewhere outside Auckland, New Zealand. So I'm pretty happy about that. And a little caveat, if you hear our jailers wandering around outside the door, that's why <laughs> you can hear some background noise. Um, yeah, so it's just a few days from Christmas, a time for giving and receiving joy and probably a bit of drunkenness and repressed family tensions. So why not help us receive some joy at the Patreon? Uh, we've got a bunch of interviews coming up for patrons, including from Mexico and a follow-up from this episode, I think will be really awesome. So check us out at Patreon slash The Underworld Podcast. Um, soon we'll have an episode from here with hopefully some reported stuff about Kiwi gangs, crimes, politics, all of that stuff. But uh, today we're hopping across the Tasman Sea to Australia and an era that shocked Melbourne in the early 2000s. My guest is someone today who knows Melbourne pretty well because he lives there for one. Um, he's sitting in Danny's chair and he's like 10,000 miles away from New York. Uh, it's writer, comedian, actor. Is there more? Uh, Sammy Shah. No, I think that should be it. That should cover it pretty much. I think actor is definitely a strong one. I don't think I have much stuff. <laughs> done much of that, but yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so... Sammy, tell us a bit about, more about yourself. Like you've lived in Australia for uh, quite some time now, right? Uh, it's been almost uh, a, a little over eight and a half years. Um, so I got here in 2012, uh, early 2012, and uh, I spent the first uh, three, four years in WA, and then I moved across to Melbourne. So I've been in Melbourne uh, for five years now, um, almost almost six at this point. And uh, yeah, and being a, a, a being someone, uh, I used to be a journalist in Pakistan, and I used to be... Um, you know, very much into just a, a, a person who's a bit of a nerd and a geek when it comes to things like crime and <laughs> uh, true crime and all that. So for me, coming to Melbourne, one of the first things I kind of immersed myself into was the true crime history of the city. Uh, it's just something I always find fascinating. Is it is it quite a is it quite a rough city? I mean, it sounds like it from the stuff I've been researching. So it, there was definitely a period when it was. There was definitely a period uh, in the early two thousands and the late nineties, particularly um, when there was a massive spike in uh, mafia related crime issues. There's still issues with bikey gangs um, or biker gangs, as they call them, the rest of the world. Um, and uh, and you know, every now and then, of course, you'll have some. I'm sure, and there's you know smaller gang activity. The same way there is in most places in the world um but mm. compared you know it, it's definitely and if you ask melburnians because a lot of them are spoiled by having lived here their whole lives they'll go oh my god there's so much crime and um there's you know there's african <laughs> there's african gangs everywhere which is just a bunch of Af uh, teenagers from african backgrounds hanging out you know there's no african right. gangs um that you know so it's, it's just stupid things like that when overall when you come from a country with properly high crime rates you're like this place is pretty much heaven <laughs> i mean so it's melburnian right just so i've got that correct all right well we're gonna go back to 2010 april 2010 for the start of this um so obama's the president haiti's uh just had a massive earthquake and those chilean miners you remember them they got saved yeah <laughs> so uh across in australia um the bloodiest era in the country's organised crime era is about to come to a close in the way it began, with extreme violence. Um, Carl Williams, this paunchy so-called smiling assassin, he's sitting down at his prison desk to read the paper. 
And one of his cellmates, Matthew Johnson, this hulking, bald criminal with a history of violence, walks up behind Williams and he just casually beats him to death with the stem of a workout bike. So that's where this uh, this story ends, really. Um, the Aussie press is in uproar and they call it in typical style a bashing death. Um, a few grisly blows. Um, one of the maddest and weirdest characters in the mob history of Melbourne, Australia's biggest city, is dead. And with him, a police corruption case that rocks the entire country for years. Um, so before I started researching this, I had pretty much no idea about Australian organised crime at all. I knew there were connections with the Italian mafia and I knew about the Aussie bikies, the biker gangs you just mentioned, actually. They were shipping meth over from Southeast Asian kingpins. Um, but beyond Ned Kelly, Chopper and Steve Smith, haha, I didn't know much about crime on Aussie soil. Uh, there was a cricket joke in there, so sorry to our American listeners. <laughs> um, and another thing, Cole Williams, who we're getting into this episode, um, this guy who kind of came out of nowhere to run Melbourne's underbelly, as people called it at the time, uh, he's got exactly the same name as my dad, by the way. And his dad, who's this old-time drug dealer crook called George Williams, that's my dad's dad's name too. So, uh, yeah, I remember we got stuck in JFK once on holiday to New York years and years ago, and my dad was saying something about cops having him on a blacklist at customs or something. So unless my old man's a liar and a drug baron or something, I reckon that was maybe because of this guy. Um, plus, I don't think the Americans could really tell ours and the Aussies' accents apart anyway. So, uh, yeah, Carl and George Williams. That's pretty weird. It's um, definitely the most uh, Carl Williams, particularly, as we'll find out, is, you know, basically a psychopath in terms of his the amount of people he killed and stuff. It's the most benign and, and mild serial killer mass murderer name in history, <laughs> I think. No one ever suspects yeah. a guy named Carl Williams of having killed lots of people and selling drugs. Yeah, I mean, and to look at the guy, right, he doesn't exactly look like your classical description of a kind of hood uh i mean yeah absolutely. yeah he looks very much like a uh, real estate agent you know and, and like <laughs> and like a crap one at that not even a good one right um so i'm, I'm gonna set the scene i mean with melbourne uh it's the capital of victoria which is i mean i guess it's probably the world's greatest sporting city right i mean you've got the aussie rules and the cricket you've got the aussie open tennis the grand prix it definitely rugby, takes, yeah, it definitely takes uh, sports very very seriously it's also uh, the most livable city in in australia and the second most livable city in the world although this was all all pre covid so i don't know where the standings are now <laughs> what's it like there at the moment because i know you had some issues with guards at the hotels having some happy times with uh, the people in quarantine it turns out that was nonsense like it actually never happened and it was just oh. a yeah so the whole thing about a security guard having sex with someone in quarantine was just a someone had made a joke on social media and um uh, rupert murdoch's uh, journalism uh, journalists uh, for who work for news uh, corp over here um are incapable of understanding satire. Uh, it's just, it's that part of the brain just never developed. And so they just assumed that it was real and ran it as a news story for it's such a prolonged period of time that everyone started believing it until other news outlets had to do proper investigation and go, nah, this is just nonsense. Like you guys are complete idiots. So uh, yeah, no, it, it spread because of just, you know, bad um, handling of quarantine because of privatization and and all those other basic issues that are ruining the world. Yeah. Um, but no, we were, <laughs> we were in seven months of lockdown and now we're out and, and we have zero cases now for the, over a month and a half. So, you know, we put in the hard yards, but it worked. Yeah, and I'm sitting here in Auckland about to come out of quarantine myself. So this is another country that's done 
pretty well. <laughs> but that's such a that's such a shame that that story wasn't true. I thought it was like the most Australian story ever. Oh yeah, heard. absolutely. We were all thrilled about it. We were all, you know, we we're like, if this is <laughs> if this is why we're in seven months lockdown, at least it was worth it for someone, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, it turns, yeah. out, it turns out the whole thing is nonsense. Oh God. Well, um, I mean, in case people don't know, Australia is pretty bloody big. So. The biggest state, Western Australia, is about a quarter the size of the entire US. Um, and I think Victoria is twice the size of New York State. So Australia is big, basically. And I remember when, when I was in Burma covering uh, drug crime out there, like the cops were telling me from Australia that they have such a hard time catching anything because you can pretty much just land your boat anywhere on the coast and there's just too much of it for anyone to cover the whole thing. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's a big sort of meth epidemic in Australia right now from what I'm reading, right? There there's has been problem. for a while. There's um, uh, ice is just because it's uh, it's relatively cheap to make and, um, and, you know, there is increasing poverty, which is largely one of the reasons why sometimes ice addiction takes place, um, as well as, a, you know, an increase in opiate addiction and stuff. We're seeing kind of a, a upwards trend in ice addiction the way we did, the way they did in America in maybe, I'd say, uh, the early 2000s, um, and they didn't get mm -hmm. it under control there. And, and it doesn't seem like we're doing a good job of getting it under control here either. Right, right. And, and we're going to get into a bit of that further down the story. But um, yeah, I mean... Melbourne, to, to, to kind of tell you what Melbourne was like, it was, it was a bit like New York in the early 20th century by the sounds of it. It was like a city of immigrants, mostly from Europe, coming to take over the land of indigenous people that the British had committed terrible acts of cruelty to. So basically the same as America, I guess. Um, <laughs> and in 1922, there's a ship called the Rey d'Italia that rocks up at Melbourne port uh, and it unloads a bunch of Italian migrants looking for a better life. So the story goes... Um, it's also carrying three members of the Calabrian and Drangheta Mafia, and they quickly set up shop in their new home. So just like there were five criminal families in the US, uh, the, the Gambinos and the Bananos and so on, there were seven in Australia, and they mostly made their money at Melbourne's fruit and veg markets, extorting local sellers and making them pay pizza or a levy on their food. So these were nice guys, and they also sold weed, good old weed. Um so this group of families, they just get more and more powerful and Australia in its modern form is a pretty new place. So the infrastructure can't keep up with these old suited and booted mobsters from Southern Italy who have been learning their trade for ages. Um, they call this amalgam the Honoured Society, by the way, which is one of the Italian names of the Mafia in Calabria. And they're still, from what I can see, they're still in partial control of the black markets today. Um, yeah. So it wasn't just Italians. They're, no, so, sorry to interrupt you, but there's definitely suburbs yeah, yeah. of Melbourne that are still, uh, you know, have a, a if, if not as heavy, but definitely a mild kind of level of control by the Calabrian mafia here. Um, I don't know if like if people even know about the like about Calabria that much and how powerful the mafia still is there compared to other parts of Italy. Like we always hear about Sicily and stuff, but if you go to Calabria, apparently uh, it's an extremely powerful organization there where you can't even mention it without getting into trouble. Um, and the reason I know this is because my ex um, was a, uh, a Calabrian Italian and her family, uh -huh. which lives here, um, or most of them were born, you know, the, the parents and everyone, aunts and uncles were all born in Calabria and then came across in the 60s and the 50s. Um, they are all still tangentially related to the Calabrian mafia in terms of, you know, every now and then boxes of cheese and olive oils will just pop up in their <laughs> homes and be like, oh, someone brought a gift and it fell off the back of a truck. And you're like, oh boy. <laughs> and so 
so you really do i mean it's really kind of a strong presence still today then i mean it's definitely here it's just not to, you know like and we've had a few weird crime things there was <coughs> pardon sorry um i was uh prior to this um, um i just moved suburbs uh, but I used to live in a suburb called Brunswick. And Brunswick is where some of the Carlton uh, crew shootings and killings that we hear about uh, in a bit, no doubt, um, uh, took place. And uh, the main uh, thing over there now is that there still is like some shops, particularly the Italian shops, do have to pay kickbacks and protection money to the mafia there have been wiretaps of people, you know, talking about how they control the streets of Melbourne. Uh, and a few, I, I think about a year and a half ago or a year ago, um, a flower seller was accidentally gunned down in a hit that was meant to get someone else and they got the wrong guy. And that was still a mafia-related hit. But, you know, it's one of those things wow. where, like, this is one case that took place out of, you know, a year of, right, uh, of right. crime, which had nothing to do with them. So they're definitely a diminished presence, and that's largely down to the Melbourne gangland killings. Okay. Um, so I'm going to do a little shout-out for some of the reading material that I've gone through. Uh, there's a really good documentary called Dead Famous, which is, goes into all of the history that we're going to get into. Um, and then someone's made this great blog called Mafia Australia, which is like this deal, like real deep, granular look into all this stuff going back like a century. Um and then while I'm giving a few shout outs, Adam Shand, this true crime writer uh, in Australia, he's done a book called Big Shots about the gangland killings. Um, he's written about Mark Chopper Reed, who's this kind of psycho gangster that people might remember from the film of Eric Banner. Um, he's written about Carl Williams. So he's really like the authority on this stuff. Uh, and he's written some great books. Anyway, so you've got Italian mobsters ripping off markets and there are Irish gangs as well. Uh, and they're based mainly, mainly down on the waterfront where the painters and dockers unions are based. Um, and so like everywhere, all the dodgy shit's coming in on the boat. So the real scraps were had down there. But there seemed to be a high value on honour, uh, at least the kind of honour that means you don't just gun people down all day long. This is relative, of course. Um, and so this honour society is growing, mostly in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, and these cities are melting pots for people all over the world. Um, when Godfather... Domenico the Pope Italiano and Antonio the Toad Barbaro both die of natural causes. I know, right? Uh, it, it, they die in 1962 and it sparks a gang war for control of Melbourne. And I, I was going to say, like, get used to the nicknames because this being an Aussie episode, almost everyone's got one, right? Well, it's not really um, a, a clever nickname. Uh, Australians <laughs> are notorious for just, uh, you know, shortening every word and adding an O at the end of it and considering that their work done for the day. Uh, so it'll, it'll, instead, of, instead of like, you know, uh, Sammy, it'll be Samo. Or instead of uh, um, <laughs> having a banana, it'll be having a banno or something, you know, like just um, unimaginative nonsense like that. So the fact that they actually went to the limits of actually calling that guy Toad means someone put in time, <laughs> effort, concentration, thought, and they came up with that, which means he should be flattered. Um, and, and that was pretty much everyone checked out for the day after that. <laughs> Do you reckon someone tried to make the argument that he should be flattered to be called the Toad? Well, <laughs> he obviously allowed it, and this is a mafia boss, so we're assuming for some reason he thought it was okay. I'm not sure why. True, true. Maybe he's just really enlightened and he knows himself. He's been getting on that therapy. Yeah, yeah that's what, that, they're known um, for the ther love of therapy, yes. <laughs> definitely, yeah, yeah. So 
in this 60s kind of mini gang war, the, the media calls it the Victoria Market murders. Uh, it seems like shotguns were the favoured weapons, especially from behind, which is su- supposedly a traditionally disrespectful death in Calabrian history. Um, after all of it, this family called the Benvenutos comes out on top, li- led by the patriarch Liborio, who's this mustachioed kind of pint-sized Burt Reynolds-looking market stall owner. Um, this guy rules like a king and he's daughter Angela marries Alfonso Muratore, which is, uh, who's the son of Vincenzo Muratore, which, who was shot dead in the battle. Um, so they lived down, down the street and there was relative peace in the underbelly for a while. Um, not far away, across town, another crime dynasty is being formed. Louis Moran and Graham Kinneberg, who's called the Munster from Melbourne's Irish contingent, were pals from the Painters and Dockers Union, which, uh, which was known throughout the 60s and 70s for a, a ton of criminal stuff and it led to a royal commission it's a bit like how the yakuza started out actually it's similar to that we've done another episode on that um but moran and kinneberg built a small criminal empire and piled up with the colton crew another local italian mafia which was enemies with the honor society so you were mentioning a minute ago right they're they're based in this kind of area that's known as little italy apparently yeah but i mean it's there's there's a lot of suburbs in melbourne that have uh, an italian um uh communities there an italian uh, settlement over here uh brunswick is one of them there's uh in carlton there's uh, at carlton's lodge where the mafia gets, gets its name from uh but you know they expand all the way out to reservoir and sunshine and all these other suburbs it's mostly the northern suburbs of melbourne um and uh and and and, and the unions back then particularly the painters and dockers union was made up of Irish, um, you know, um, Irish uh-huh. waterfront workers, and then also the uh, Italian Calabrian mafia kind of people, and they and they worked together to kind of set up a mafia crew. That was actually right, largely right. Ita- like the, the Morans that you mentioned weren't of Calabrian background; uh, they were uh, Italians, but I don't think they were Calabrian. I think they were they were Irish, right? And yeah, so that's they right. Were, they were working with the Irish down the docks. That's and right. That's they right. Yeah, they were up with the Italians. Yeah, yeah, and then. And you get these underbelly figures called Mike Gatto, who's going to come up a bit later. And then this guy called Alphonse Gangitano. Which Gangitano. Is oh, it's a hard Gangitano, G the sorry. and then a soft G in the middle, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, Alphonse. <laughs> uh, but so things plod along between these groups and there's the odd sprout of violence, but mostly business is good. The Pizzo's doing okay and the factions keep mostly to themselves. Uh, quote, the Honor Society was never quite as big as influential as in Australia as people thought, uh, says a former policeman. Uh, the, oh yeah, this guy's called Brian the Skull Murphy. Um, so even, even the cops have got pretty scary nicknames in Australia. Um, he continues, Benvenuto had had to cast a big shadow to ma- maintain the status quo. This occasionally had to be backed up by action, lest the aura of power diminish. To get the young Italians to show loyalty to him required a fear of the unknown. So he's 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 walking he's talking the talk, but maybe not walking so many walks at this time. Um, but Liborio dies in 1988, and instead of his son Frank, he grooms this dashing lawyer called Joseph Pino Aquara to take over. I looked up Pino, by the way, it just means pine tree. So oh, it's not really? quite the skull. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's actually a gentle yeah, and not... quite lovely nickname. <laughs> Yeah, this guy's like all pinstripe suits and sort of coiffured hairdo. So he's he's kind of a slick, slicker side of the business. Yeah. Um, is clever and he knows the law and how to get around it. Uh, Laborio's no fool, basically. Um, in 92, revenge murders account for Frank and Alphonse Muratori. But by and large, that's how things were panning out. And the Honor Society and Carlton crew, they're getting along pretty much okay. It's when 
drugs come along really in a big way that things change. So especially with heroin and meth, you've got Vietnamese and Chinese gangs bringing them over and there's speed by the bikers. And I think it seems like the bikers are used as kind of couriers for the bigger crime syndicates, right? It, it seems like they're just the kind of foot soldiers or how does that kind of work? Well, out? I mean, yeah, basically they're, uh, they've got their own bikey gangs and everything and they're not really, um, uh, you know, I mean, they, they exist in their own world and they've got their own uh, drug uh, cartels and, and their own revenue streams and everything. Uh, but yeah, they do work uh, with the mafia as the on the ground guys because obviously they're, they're more intimidating, they're, they're more violent, they're, more, you know, they've got literally giant bikes that they ride around in. Um, so they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're yeah, you know, they they make for a good PR move. Are they big? Do, I mean, do you see them around? Like, do they make the news? Not really. I mean, there are suburbs again where you might see them, and uh, and and it'll be the CD part of the suburb and stuff. But they, you know, Melbourne cops have done a very good job in the last uh, decade or so of kind of pushing a lot of this stuff out um and shutting it down and, and you know at the very least uh, like you still hear about bikey wars or bikey fights and stuff but it's very minimal at this point right right um so the the weed in australia is mostly being dished out by the italians as it has been for years and what's important is that there's new party drugs so ecstasy is going wild in the 90s obviously there's rave culture all over the world um and that's when we get to 1999 and carl williams so it might be obvious by now, we've just spoken about it, but Carl Williams kind of comes out of left field altogether, right? And a news guy told an ABC crew that, quote, Carl was a supermarket shelf stacker and not a particularly good one. But along the way, he learned that there was more money in drugs. So, yeah, I mean, you've got these kind of picture perfect gangster looking guys on the Italian and Irish sides. There's all these suits and slick back hair and tacky jewelry, shiny shoes, the whole works. Um, this is especially the case of Alphonse Gangitano, by the way, who's tall, built, fond of a suit and uh, sunglasses combo. It'd be hard to pick him out of a Sopranos lineup, basically. Um, in fact, one cop says that, quote, the Melbourne lot thought The Sopranos was a documentary, which is kind of what I feel about it since Danny described growing up in New York. But anyway, um, so there you've got this kind of this whole scene going on. You know, I think it's quite regimented and it's full of this tradition and so-called honour. Um, and then this kind of weird guy just shows up and the cops at this time this is kind of mad but they're not really helping the scene out at all they buy chemicals at wholesale and they sell them on the black market and they call it controlled delivery um i'm not really sure what their yeah there's their so end goal is there basically there's a long history of melbourne policing um and and victoria police and i'm sure it's largely the same in the whole country which is what happens when you've got cops who don't have to deal with very intense levels of crime that they don't really uh, they're not very good at that um and what ends up happening here is that they just crap at their job you know largely <laughs> if it if 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 what's required of them is just pepper spraying and beating a whole bunch of um, uh, activists trying to stop a refugee from being put taken from one detention center to another uh, because that's a human rights violation. The cops are phenomenal. They will dress up into the nines. They'll put all kinds of protective gear on, helmets and bulletproof shields and, and all kinds of vests and stuff. And they will pepper spray and, and, and baton beat the crap out of you. But when it came to just this, which was a fairly obvious um, a crime story where like the names of the, all the major players was known um 
you know, everyone knew who was involved, who wasn't involved. Everyone knew who, you know, where to trace the money. Um, you know, even Carl Williams, who came out, out of nowhere a little bit, was, you know, a fairly big figure and a well-known figure by the end of it. Uh, and it took them ages to catch them. It took them absolutely ages because just basic policing uh, was so outside their purview. So, you know, something like, you know, if you, if you did The Wire in Australia... Um, it would be it would make the American version of the wire with the Baltimore situation seem like a very successful uh, series of arrests and very efficiently done. Whereas the Melbourne one is like a more of a bumbling kind of a buffoonery uh, exhibition. Yeah, a bumbling is like I think a very kind term for the cops because we're going to get into a lot of that in a moment as well. I mean, there is actually like a wire style show about all this, right? Called Underbelly. Yeah, it's a, it's called Underbelly. Well known at the it's, time. It's not great. It's it's okay. There's some great acting in it but it's very badly edited uh-huh. and produced and directed and stuff um and there's some bizarre like uh, choices in that and in that they glorify the daylights out of the cops you know obviously it's very much a police propaganda piece where you know the uh, um, um the task force piranha which was kind of put together is made to look like an amazing task force full of these super motivated individuals who it turns out were all all fictional because real cops would just that shit at it. I mean, there's, there's. I don't know. Will you be covering the Nicola Gobbo st- element of this? Yeah, yeah. We're All gonna right. get to her. Soon. I'm gonna, leave, yeah. I'm gonna not get there right now. But she's the perfect example of how at- utterly terrible the police are. Yeah, we we don't have to be waiting for Gobbo. I was, I was waiting for a. I was waiting for a reason <laughs> to use that pun. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Und- didn't Underbelly get in trouble for like following the story so? To, down to the wire that they were actually like in contempt of court for some of these things or something I read. There's a like lot was- of um, weird contempt of court rules in Australia. Um, so, for example, um, you know, if you remember the Cardinal George Pell case that came, that was a big deal in mm. 2019, um, where a Catholic cardinal with the church uh, was accused of, of uh, child abuse and then uh, found guilty uh, in two cases and then uh, and then those were reversed later but the entire world was reporting on it but in Australian media outlets were not allowed to even mention him by name because mm. of um, of privacy laws and stuff so yeah there's a lot of weird kind of regressive very very out of date privacy laws here right they just called him Cardi P or something yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah so we've got this this whole scene and this guy this guy comes onto the scene and there's these cops so they're doing this controlled delivery and they're doing this so much that the police are actually the biggest customer for Sigma at the time which is this leading pharma firm um as you can imagine this genius brain idea doesn't work that well and just kind of floods Melbourne with drugs uh yeah, I've got, I had a little note at this point saying, believe it or not, this is the least shit thing the Victoria Police yes. do in this story. <laughs> um, but Alphonse, he wants to be the kind of big man in Melbourne, the godfather. Um, and Jason Moran, son of Lewis, has other ideas. And he goes to Alphonse's home for a chat, pulls a handgun and shoots Alphonse dead. So there's chaos in the underbelly and the cops are pretty much pushing it along themselves. And at the same time, this dumpy butt-chin guy called Carl Williams is cornering the party drug scene by pressing so-called dog tablets, which is a mixture of ketamine and pseudo, apparently. Um, and they branded these pills FUBUs or UFOs. They don't sound like a lot of fun, to be honest, but um, him and his dad, George, make a packet selling it with the help of the bikies and they undercut the underbelly with George. Um, who And George is kind of this small-time crook, right? He's called a the, the gangsters called him a shit man which is a nobody right i guess you didn't need the uh, translation um 
And so Cole doesn't look like these other gangsters at all. He's kind of fat and he's got frosted tips and sunglasses. They look like they've come from some cheapo beach hut. Um, and he, they call him the smiling assassin, but he, I mean, he could more accurately be called the most bogan gangster ever. Am I getting... Am I getting Bogan? <laughs> you are, right? well done, I... correct, yeah. Um, although you might have to translate Bogan for the non-Aussie uh, listeners. Yeah, what, is it like a sort of it's like redneck a, it's, or like a hick? It's like a hick, not even a redneck so much as just like a hick. And the idea is, that it's, there's obviously a lot of classism involved in that, you know, it's just someone who is very, very finite, um, uh, lower class in terms of financial income. And then there's the mullet, and then there's the the addiction to doing burnouts in a ute, and and uh, and you know <laughs> eating meat pies and having VB beer for breakfast, and so yeah, it's very much a uh, lifestyle choice. Okay, sounds great. I mean, I've, I think he looks a bit like a Aussie Guy Fieri, so that was where I was trying to draw the line with America. Even um, I, I would say Guy Fieri still has a bit of pizzazz. Carl Williams, like it's if you look at his pictures, if he walked into the room with three other people, he's the one you would not notice. And I think maybe that's what kind of worked in his favor in the end: the fact that he's utterly, utterly forgettable. <laughs> yeah, he keeps wearing these kind of oversized shirts and like leather jackets. I thought were cool that made me look grown up when i was like 14 right um but like yeah there's a there's a great quote from mark uh mark reed by the way chopper who people should definitely look up if they don't know who he is um he says quote to get anywhere in the criminal world you had to fucking fight then along came drugs and you didn't have to be able to fight anymore the village idiots and town mice were becoming drug lords (laughs) (laughs) he's so upset about that i know i know it's really pissed him off Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um... Williams' upbringing is pretty tough. He grows up in West Melbourne and gets into drugs early. Is West Melbourne bad? Is that a bad place? Um, not anymore. Uh, but yeah, uh, apparently it was at one point. Long right. before is I got it kind here. of like hipster gentrified it's, these days? Everything is hipster gentrified these days. It's basically, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, West Melbourne is now where you would get avocado on toast. But back then, I'm sure it was it was more frightening. Right, right. Um, so Williams' older brother Shane dies of a heroin overdose in 97. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have put Carl off the industry at all. Um, and when brothers Jason and Mark Moran pay Williams to do a pill job for them, uh, he doesn't mix the binding agent properly, apparently, and the pills just go to shit. It's not clear whether he did this on purpose or by accident but you can imagine these old grizzled docker gangsters aren't too uh, happy with him at this point so so they set up a meeting in 99 with williams on this little empty patch of green in a suburb uh, an argument breaks out and jason pulls out a, a 22 pistol and he threatens williams mark at this point orders jason to shoot williams in the head but jason instead puts one in his beer belly because he didn't know how he'd get his money back with a dead williams so this moment here when he's getting shot in this tiny little park, this is when the Melbourne gangland war really kicks off in earnest. Um, and Melbourne, uh, sorry, and, and Williams, this cheery faced kind of dopey looking guy, he wants revenge. Uh, a guy who's called Mr. X, who's this underworld figure who gets in with Williams at the, the time and later testifies against him. We're going to get into him as well in a moment. He says that Williams would rant and rave about the Moran family saying, quote, I want them... <laughs> I want every one of them dead and every one of their crew dead. So uh, 
I guess that's pretty clear. And they had a wiretaps going on a lot of this stuff. So they had the recordings of them saying this. Um, I don't know why they decided not to act at the time. Uh, like, there's another story with a with a with a bug later on. I think one of one of the police puts it in a car and it causes the brake lights to flicker. Yes, but it's catching like every single thing. It's like it's they've they've got every single thing on record at this point, and no one's getting arrested at all. Um, so yeah, it just keeps on happening, and. Uh, so Williams recovers from his gunshot wound and he gets straight back to pressing those pills. Uh, soon after, cops find him and George uh, in their house and Carl's asleep, tucked up in bed. And his pill press is just going like the clappers working on a job worth over 15 million Australian dollars, apparently. I think it's like 75 US cents to an Aussie dollar, so I guess it's <laughs> yeah, 10 right. million bucks. So that's a that's a decent amount of money for a little homespun pill press. Um, the, the the police obviously they throw Williams in jail and he meets a guy called Victor Brinkat. So this guy called, is called the Runner because he does bank jobs with his getaway car parked miles away and he runs to it instead of getting straight in the car. Again, sounds very Aussie to me. Um, <laughs> like it sounds like uh, a terrible, terrible plan, but for some reason it made right? work as a shtick. Like it became his thing, you know. I <laughs> know. The thing I do is I go on foot and then get in a car. That's great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> they're like, "Wow, this guy's the Riddler of of Melbourne. Genius. <laughs> but I mean, he, this guy is going to be involved in a very big way. So he Williams offered this guy seventy grand to off the Moran brothers, uh, and soon after he gets out on on bail himself, and then all hell breaks loose, right? So Jason Moran at this time he swerves his first wave of violence because he's actually chucked in jail himself over a massive nightclub brawl, uh, but his brother not so much. So there have been a bunch of killings at this point, drug world, drive-bys, execution-style shootings. But on June twenty, uh, June 15th, 2000, Carl Williams steps it up. He ambushes Mark Moran in his car outside his luxury mansion, and he shoots him dead. Uh, Moran had been under police surveillance, of course, but cameras had been switched off before the murder. Um, and this is the only one of the gangland killings, I believe, where Williams actually pulled the trigger himself. Um but for him, things are on the up. He marries Roberta Merciera, an ex-wife of one of the Morans and a convicted drug dealer in 2001. So that's going to make everyone happy. Um, and in the same year, he had a kid with her and they called her Dakota. So then <laughs> so then Jason Moran gets out of prison. But rather than get out while everyone's getting killed, he decides he's going to take over the family business, which is a bad idea. Brinkat gets out of prison himself and the murders continue. In 2012, uh, 2002... A police informant is shot in the chest and head while wearing a wire, and he survives. By this time, there have been 20 murders in six years, and the police are the ones who haven't been paid off, don't really know what to do. Like you said, I think they're just kind of bewildered at this point, right? And it's, and it's remarkable because, like, how many people survive shootings that, you know, that the Carl Williams shot in the gut, no problem. This police uh, informant shot in the face and, 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 and body, no problem. <laughs> Walks it off. And you're just like, okay, so even the gangsters aren't that good at doing what they're supposed to do. This shouldn't be so hard to catch them. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, but some of the cops definitely do know what they're doing. So <laughs> at this time, and then they're, they're not doing the right thing, shall we say. Um but then the next year, in 2003, something really shocking happens. So Jason Moran and his minder, Pasquale Barbaro, no nickname, sorry, Pasquale, uh, are waiting outside an Ozclick clinic. Uh, Ozclick clinic. Ozclick clinic. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird, it's, it's, just, it's a soccer camp, that's all. Right, so it's like quick cricket or touch football or something like that. Right, it's just football. Um, it's, um, you know, it's what, in, in America, it's called soccer, which is, you know, just football in the rest of the world. And it's basically like an, an indoor version of that. And then they do outdoor as well, uh, with slightly modified rules for kids and stuff. Uh, I see. All right. So 
these guys, they're in a blue Mitsubishi wagon with about seven kids in the back. And Brinkat and a guy's uh, cops are going to call the driver, um, walk up to the van and blow Moran and Barbara away with, yep, shotguns. Uh, then Brinkat runs off, of course. Yeah, that's uh, his thing. <laughs> Of course, yeah. And then he meets Williams to tell him the job's done. So we know he tells Williams the job's done because we've got it all on mm-hmm. records. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so this point, Williams makes a pretty weird decision. So he stiffs the assassins. Um, he gives Brinkat an envelope with two grand in it and nothing to Mr. X, or the driver, sorry. So that's a cracking idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. So either way, a, a killing like that in front of kids in broad daylight, tons of witnesses... This changes the whole thing for for the police and the media. Um, And one lawyer tells ABC, quote, previously people were murdered in their driveways, in their cars at night. And now you've you've got normal suburban families going to a Nozkit clinic. I got it right that time. Seeing two people being brutally murdered in front of their own children. Uh, And then another murder cop says simply, crooks don't do things like that. So... This is like a, a, a major turning point. Yeah, it's, it seems, a, it's a massive escalation uh, at this point. It's um, it, it's uh, and and it caught everyone by surprise. Apparently, the cops were out. I spoke to um, some well, at the ABC when I was working there. Some of the guys who covered this beat uh, were people that, that were my colleagues, and they used to tell me stories about how this was an unprecedented thing. Like no one had seen any. You know, uh, it was the it was the nine eleven of uh, Victorian police uh, and crime association. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, about the same time, this thug guy from the neighborhood called Andrew Benji Veniamin, uh, he's hired to take out Williams and his family, and he takes an accomplice along and he waits on the roof of their home. Um, but the story goes that when Veniamin sees Roberta breastfeeding Dakota, he can't carry, bring himself to carry out the hits. Yep. And then, and then he weirdly becomes Williams' best friend and confidant. Yep. And Dakota even calls him Uncle Andrew. So that's a nice, sweet, uh, happy story. Yeah, he ends up having what many believe is an affair with um, Carl Williams' wife. Uh, she calls him her his her soulmate. Um, and <laughs> uh, yeah, and and he was also my ex's family's friend. Like apparently, when I was watching the Shit, Underbelly, really? when I was watching the Underbelly TV series, and uh, you know the. the 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 actor who plays Carl Benjamin kind of walks in and out of the screen and one of my ex's aunties walked into the room at that point and said, yeah, we remember him. He used to come around all the time. He was a lovely guy. And I'm like, great, awesome. <laughs> oh I am in a, in a wonderful place right now. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> I didn't realize you were that close to this story. <laughs> it, neither did I until it started happening. And it's one, it's, it takes a lot for a guy from Pakistan, particularly Karachi, to feel unsafe. <laughs> and in that, mo- <laughs> in that moment, I definitely did. So um, until until this point, cops really hadn't joined the dots with all these killings. And they it seems like they, despite all of the wiretaps and everything, they're still not kind of fingering Williams as the main guy involved in all of them. Maybe they just think he's too much of this happy-go-lucky idiot. I think it was really just for, the, for, for them, just like everyone else, it was just too hard to believe. You know, every time they'd be like, oh, it's definitely Williams, then someone would pull up a photograph and they'd be like, can't be. Look at him. Look at the frosted tips. <laughs> Look at the ill-fitting it's suits. Like, it's got to be someone better than this. It's like this overweight 90s boy band guy. <laughs> he can't He can't be killing everyone. Um, so in 2003, Victoria Police, I guess they're under a lot of pressure by now, and they lo- launched this task force called Piranha, which isn't the fish, but P-U-R-A-N-A, which is, I looked at it, it's an ancient collection of Sanskrit literature. It's said, really strange. Been, on the force being brushing up or... <laughs> it's really strange because Purana in Urdu uh, and in Hindi just means old. 
So, uh, yeah. and, and, and I can't really find other meanings for it. So basically, they're like, yeah, we'll have a task force and we'll call it old, I guess. So someone someone on the task force knows Urdu or Hindi. Yeah, Urdu, think. Hindi or Sanskrit. But either way, they were poorly placed in their job. Like, they should have had Incredibly some Incredibly literary. literary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these guys then begin bringing, like building this idea of Williams's drug empire and Brinkat. Um, but there's trouble on that horizon too, and we're going to find out in a moment. Um, but meanwhile, it just becomes the Carl Williams show. He doesn't mind speaking to the media. He takes to call himself the premier. Um, quote, he got bigger and bigger and greedier and greedier, as they tend to do, uh, one police officer says. So now we're getting to the real dark meat of the gang gangland killings i guess in 2003 cops bug a car yes this is the car that's being driven by brinkat but yeah this thing makes the brake lights flicker and the crooks find it anyway they so this is something i didn't understand they bring the bug to williams and he brushes it off and says he'll quote do the job anyway so they've got him with this bug and he still says something on record um it just kind of shows you the brazenness of how it's getting at this point. I think brazen uh, is 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 a, is the wrong word there. I think the stu- the intense stupidity of everyone involved. Intense stupidity. <laughs> um, so while police are floundering around trying to figure out what that actually means, Brinkat guns down Michael Marshall, who's this hot dog vendor and drug dealer. I guess he was probably making more from one of those jobs than the other. <laughs> um, but it, they do it next to his five year old son, so it's pretty grim and it's. Um, and anyway, Brinkat runs home as he was, as he wants to do. And uh, for some reason, he calls Williams and he tells them in a pretty slack code that a horse he likes has been quote scratched. Uh, so there's your criminal masterminds. Yep. Yeah, I yes. guess you are right. Yeah, it's not, it's less brazen than than idiotic. Um, anyway, so the cops pick this conversation up and they take them both into custody. So finally, they've got off their ass and done something. Um, Williams then distances himself from Brinkat, and when Brinkat begs him to at least look after his own mum, uh, Williams wires her just a few grand. So he's shortchanged him again, and that, unsurprisingly, is going to bite him in the backside in a little bit. Um, so now we get to this really strange period in the in the killings. Um, in September that year, the home of a notorious drug smuggler called Tony Mockbell is broken into by a small-time mobster called Terry Hodson and this ponytail cop. Uh, and they take a bunch of money and guns. And there's a great quote from the officer who gets called to the scene. Uh, I wish I could do this in an Aussie accent. He says, <laughs> I thought, here we go. This is going to be an all-nighter. Um, and I think it's part of an ABC program that I saw. It is brilliant when he says that. Um, so this guy who's caught this cop is called David Michel. Uh, and he's actually supposed to be putting the house under surveillance, not robbing it. And Hodson is actually a police informer himself who's been ratting out his mates to Michel and Paul Dale, who's Michel's boss. So that might sound a bit fishy, to say the least. Um, later in 2003, police charge Dale, Michelle and Hodson with the break-in. And they want to put Hodson into witness protection because he's obviously on a bunch of kill lists at this point. Um, but Hodson's daughter's just had a baby and she refuses and they carry on in their Melbourne home. So Hodson then tells the leader of Victoria's anti-corruption squad, Murray Gregor, no nickname again, sorry Murray, uh, that Dale has been on the take from Carl Williams. And George Williams even tells him he's given Dale six grand at one point himself. Uh, Dale had also been trying to figure out the location of Jason Moran before the Mitsubishi killings, by the way. So this is all turning into a real web of uh, dark shit. And then in 2003, December, Graham Kinneberg, who at this point is considered the city's biggest gangster, he's shot dead. 
His associate Mike Gatto accuses Venimin, who police believe has committed seven murders at this point. Cops say Williams is next for the block. He says, quote, if anyone wants to come and get me, then come and get me. Just don't miss. Uh, so, so at this point, he's very free. much kind of modeling himself after um, Al Pacino in um, uh, what was the movie with the comical amounts of cocaine at the end of it? Oh, oh right, yeah, Scarface. Scarface. <laughs> yeah, Scarface. Like he's he sees himself as a Scarface. This is going to be a great last stand. It doesn't work out that way, but that's very much what he's aiming for and hoping right. for. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, in March uh, the next year, Gatto shoots Vinny in round the back of a Colton pizza joint. So that's very Godfather as well. Mm-hmm. Um, amazingly, given he literally said he wanted to kill Vinnyman, a jury believes Gatto acted in self-defense and finds him not guilty of murder. Um, that's pretty laughable. It's, it basically, everyone on the jury's last name was oddly Gatto as well, probably, or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, oddly the mouth Gatto. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so back to the cops. So Dale has got a bunch of vice squad colleagues to inform on the anti-corruption squad, which is pretty mad. And phone lines being tapped, actually catching, they actually catch him reaching out to Williams at this time. But this info isn't obviously getting back to Gregor on the anti-corruption squad. This is crazy. And then on the eve of May 16th, 2004, police are called to Terry Hodson's home where he and his wife, Christine, have been shot twice in the back of the head, execution style. Not only that, but the killer, and this is brazen, had picked up the empty shells and placed them on the bodies carefully. Uh, And secret police files on Hodson's snitching have been stolen from the station and leaked to folks in the underworld. So it's all gone a bit the departed now right yeah there's a lot um, of leaks and and, and those though by the way those investigations are still ongoing to this day like you still have um task force piranha uh you know uh, uh grand grand jury investigations taking place in australia right so this stuff's still still going on well it's mainly the the it's the um the level of infiltration into the cops the uh, the amount of um of uh, bribery that was st- you know involved and everything that's still coming out yes wow yeah, so it's gone a bit departed, but this is actually going to get a bit crazier now. So now we're going to get into Nicola Gobbo. Um, so she doesn't really need a nickname, I guess. She's been a star criminal defense well, lawyer in Melbourne for years. she has a nickname, though. In Australian media, she was called Lawyer X for the longest time. Lawyer X. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was reading about that, and actually the Victoria Police had tried to sort of muzzle the press and issue all these injunctions and stop them even calling her that. Well, like, it's they, funny. They really like, didn't want this out at all. I, you know, for example, when I first started looking into the story, it was right around the time the Lawyer X stuff was coming out, and I was working in on, in, on radio at the ABC, and, you know, when the, the first day that we kind of covered this Lawyer X thing, the cops said, you can't name her, and no one knows the name, no one knows who is it, who it is. All we know is their name is Lawyer X, and they were a major informant. And the text lines on the, on the radio station went nuts because every single listener was like, yeah, it's Nicola Gobbo. We all know it's Nicola. Everyone knows it's Nicola Gobbo. It's obvious. Like, it was crazy. The whole city of Melbourne knew the identity of Lawyer X, and the cops were pretending as if no one knew. <laughs> I remember the, the thing about Ryan Gibbs sleeping with his brother's wife yeah, that seems the same kind of thing but <laughs> yeah um so yeah nicola gobbo is this kind of like star criminal defense lawyer in melbourne for years and she's the daughter of this legal dynasty high riser the whole shebang um and she ends up representing among others tony mockbell the guys who had the guy whose house was burgled and yep carl williams uh, and there's this actual picture of them together at a casino it looks sm- so small time crook it's really funny um 
So it turns out Mockbell is getting pissed off with Gobbo and he starts threatening her. Then she goes to the police and offers to turn informant on her celebrity clients for them. Um, at this point, you might assume the cops tell her to do one, right? Because she's a lawyer. It's highly morally improper for her to be passing on details of clients to police. Uh, well, no, uh, we're learning that's not the way of Melbourne cops. So so they they sign her up. Where, where can you sign Nicola? Um, and this this war is raging on at this point. So Louis Moran, uh, Louis Moran, the patriarch of the family, he's killed in a shootout at Northern Melbourne Club. Italians are killing Irish, Irish killing Italians. All the time, Williams is making a packet and ordering these murders. Um, Brincat, bless him, still hasn't turned on his absolute shit of a boss. Uh, he's in jail, but but Williams sells sell himself out. Sorry, but Williams selling him out eventually takes his toll. And Brinkat sends a letter to the police. And when they want, they ask him what he wants in return. He says, "quote I'd kill for a vanilla slice." <laughs> of course. So, why not? yeah, why not? Eh? He's got to keep that energy up for the, all the running. Um, Jesus. I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy, right? Like, um, so yeah, we, we'll jump toward to 2007 at this point. So Williams is actually sent down for three of the murders uh, and he gets off a fourth, although the true number of people he killed is probably quite a few more. Uh, and he gets 35 years. At this point, the da- uh, Dale, the accused officer, he's in deep trouble, obviously. If Williams spills the beans about the Hodson couple's killing, he'll probably be screwed. Although I probably should add at this point that he denies everything. Um, Oh, and by the way, he's being represented by Nicola Gobbo um, and she's having an affair with the assistant police commissioner who's called Jeff Pope. Uh, and these names, they yeah, these really don't need any nicknames at all at this point. Um, and Williams has realised that Gobbo is the gob shooting her mouth to the police at this point because she's been visiting all sorts of people in prison who aren't even their clients and he can see. So this is just mad. And at one point, she breaks into the office of another lawyer. I think that is Zara. Yep, maybe, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and she finds a bunch of phone records that would have outed her at this point. So she slams the cops for their, quote, sloppy work. Um, what do you think she wanted as payback? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a vanilla slice, no. but it was tickets to see Lionel Richie. <laughs> well, look, uh, to be fair, I think that's a good that's a good buy. Like, if you're going to get tickets for anything, I would say Lionel Richie is a concert that you definitely want to risk your life for, you know? At least it wasn't something <laughs> crap. Fair, fair. Yeah, maybe I'm t- being too harsh on the rich. Um, but so the net, the tights net, uh, like, so the net is tightening, obviously, on Gobbo and Dale at this point, And Williams realises and he decides to turn Supergrass behind bars uh, at Barwon Prison, which is near Geelong in Victoria. That's like 
what a short hour drive away yeah, from easy. Melbourne or something? Yeah, not, not yeah. far at all. So he tells cops that under Dale's orders, he paid a small-time gangster called Rodney Collins to, t- to kill Terry and Christine Hodson. Um, and that year, actually, off to the side a little bit, but still involved in Mafia, documents provided by Gobbo helped make the world's biggest ever ecstasy bust when 15 million pills hidden, hidden in 3,000 tins of tomato are stopped in New South Wales, where they're being brought brought in by the Honor Society Calabrian guys. Um, and there's rumours that the Indrangheta mobsters back in Italy still want people dead over that bus today. So her, she's got the goods, like, but she's a lawyer, so this is not going to end well. Well, that's the problem, yeah. is, uh, is she, she did a good job, it just wasn't her job to do at all. Yeah, I mean, and she definitely knows what she's doing, right? So she says, uh, she says quote, I've chucked ethics out the window, I've chucked legal professional privilege out the window, I've chucked my career out the window. And if any of this came out, <clears throat> she tells a handler, she'd be so fucked, it's not funny. So, uh, yeah, she knows exactly what she's doing now. Um, so now we've got Williams in a high security prison singing about everyone in the underbelly. We've got Paul Dale sweating out a double murder charge. And we've got Nicola Gobbo getting increasingly wound up in all this dangerous informing and she's getting death threats. Um, and it's now 2010. And everyone in Melbourne's mafia is shitting bricks, basically, about what Williams is telling the police. Um, one of its biggest players by this time is a, a guy called Rocco Arico. And, of course, Paul Dale's entire case rests on Williams' testimony. Well, uh, bad news for Williams. The two guys he's sharing a cell with, and this is uh, this kind of big common room with cell rooms off to one side and a gym seating area. It looks quite nice actually i'm just trying to stoke the prisons of bloody cakewalk guys you know um, so these these two guys one's an associate of rocco rico and the other is this big scary guy called matthew johnson long history of violence pretty nasty bloke um how he ended up in a cell with those two guys is just incredible um so one day in april 2010 johnson walks up behind williams while he's reading the paper and he smashes his head in with the stem of the exercise bike Ten minutes afterwards, the third cellmate calls up a Rico and tells him about it. Like, they just have open phone lines. <laughs> yes, for some reason, there's no, um, yeah, there's no, you know, how in the, se- the start of serial season one, you have that, you know, you've got to collect call from so-and-so prison. <laughs> yeah. There's none of that here. It's just everyone's got a cell phone. <laughs> they've got a good data plan. Yeah. It's incredible. And they, like this guy calls up Rocco Rico, tells him the deed is done or whatever. And it's then another 17 minutes before the guards even realizes, like if any guards realize what's going on. Um, uh, the, the anti-corruption cop at this point, Murray Gregor, he's just like, I think he's just like, bewildered that this happened like literally every single thing they could have done to protect Williams and Hodson has just been scuppered by their colleagues um and that's really the end of the Melbourne gang killings really because they all obviously with the biggest evidence against him he's now six feet under and by the way he gets uh taken out in a gold coffin so he keeps the look to the end of course um yeah so so Dale on the coffin yeah (laughs) Yeah, perfect. So he gets off the charge, Dale. And uh, Gobbo, she gets increasingly death threats and the police aren't uh, protecting her at all. She flees to another country with her kids. Um, And until recently, she was there, I believe. And the Australian police said that if she returned, they'd take the kids off of her because of the danger she was under. So they really did a number on her. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you were saying, there's, there's tons of inquiries about police corruption in the last few years. And it seems that the cops are trying to scupper that too. Um, and then what's more, because the evidence supplied by Gobbo was clearly tainted, a bunch of guys have already got off their charge. Um, 
so yeah, a complete shit show, basically. Yeah, and there you have it. That's the Melbourne um, gangland case. One of the guys you mentioned, Tony Mockbell, he's in prison, mm. but he's been, you know, he's been uh, um, contesting his conviction because he says that the way that the police got their information on which to arrest him, that is in and of itself illegal because it came through Gabo. So she basically compromised the whole case, and and the reason why the police were so desperate to use her because they had no other ways of bringing these guys in, and so they went with you know the extreme option. Except when you look at the court coverage and the and the police investigation, there were a million other ways to bring these guys in. The wiretaps, for example, or the eyewitness accounts or any of those things, they just were either so compromised by corruption themselves or were just so utterly terrible at their jobs that they never bothered bringing anyone in properly. It, it doesn't sound like a lot has changed since either, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, basically, the one thing that's changed is uh, either the, the you know the mafia and everyone have really gone underground and done a better job of hiding themselves, or the cops have, ma- or you know, I think basically, what, honestly, what ended up happening is this whole Melbourne gangland killings was such a high-profile event. It worked badly for not just the police but also for the mafia. You know, they don't want to be. Mm. Uh, you know, this isn't this isn't the Sicilian mafia, which has a more uh, prominent uh, public profile. You know, even in Italy, even in and if you go out to places like in New York and all these places, you know, the Sicilian mafia are media figures. We always know their names. We always know their personalities and all that stuff. The Calabrian mafia is very low key. They don't like being talked about. They don't like being in the press. And so right. uh, that's how they exert their power is by being the invisible hand. And so the fact that this was such a high profile thing, I think for them was a lesson in in um, decorum and a lesson in restraint. And you've seen a bit of that now. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that kind of brings us full circle. Does that sound like the city you know and love, Sammy? <laughs> Honestly, it sounds like the, it does not sound like the city I know and love now. It's very much the past of Melbourne, and it is something that's a big part of the past of Melbourne. You know, like when. Uh, you know, they, 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 you'll, you can go to the areas now, but, you know, there's, um, uh, for example, one of the Moran, um, uh, el- yeah, the elder of the Moran family was shot in the Brunswick pub, uh, which, you know, you can go into and just see if you want the, 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 right. the, um, the Oz Kicks uh, clinic where uh, those guys were, were, were shot, shotgun to the face while there were seven kids in the back seat. That's near where I'm living right now. So that, that is very much still there. The history of it's there, and you're aware of that history. But it's so different in terms of, you know, a lot of it's like um, if you go to Times Square now or in the last, you know, 20 years, and you see this kind of disney version of Times Square, which used to be a really seedy place in the 80s and 90s. You know, 80s and 90s New York, Times Square was uh, was just peep shows and and drug deals and things like that. And now it's just it's this wonderful place where you can take awesome photographs um, and that's mm. what's happened. It's been like the gentrification of Melbourne has kind of pushed all of that underground and out of sight. And Melbourne is right. such a great, such a modern, such a livable city with such a good reputation for peace and, and, and low crime that I think it works in everyone's favor to maintain that. Okay, so the Tourism Board of Victoria State are going to be very happy with that. That's the final yeah, so. <laughs> parting advert for them. <laughs> they took a beating because of COVID lockdown. So, yeah, I'm sure they'd be thrilled to, to hear that they're doing a lot better now. Cool. Well, uh, Sammy, thanks ever so much for your, uh, coming on the show. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's, been, it's, been a, it. it's been a ride talking about all this. Cheers. And, uh, yeah, don't forget you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, our website, Patreon, obviously, and all of that good stuff. So, uh, yeah, thanks again, and we'll see you soon.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.